Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Airway First, the podcast from the Children's Airway First Foundation. I'm your host, Rebecca St. James. My guest today is Kelsey Baker, a holistic pediatric occupational therapist. Kelsey has worked in early intervention since 2009 and has been working with children between the ages of 0 to 5 in the Philadelphia area since 2011. Kelsey is focused on proactive care to best support babies in their feeding and overall development, as she believes that feeding is a vital sign and can be indicative of so much happening within a child's body. She uses a combination of body work and therapeutic modalities to help regulate nervous systems, increase mobility and strength, and help parents best support their babies where they are and on the way to where they want to be. You can find out more about Kelsey at BeWellOT.com. And now let's jump into my interview with Kelsey Baker. Okay, great. All right. Thank you so much and welcome uh, to the show, Kelsey. I really appreciate you being on. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, This podcast has been a great source of education and connection for me. So I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Oh, I appreciate it. So let's just start at the beginning, just so everybody, we're all coming from the same understanding of exactly what is a holistic occupational therapist and how do you specifically work with kids? Um, so holistic to me is kind of a buzzword and I kind of, oh, I wasn't sure about using it in my, my branding and my business name and all of those things. But I think it's important to understand that I'm not just looking at one piece of a child. I'm looking at the family dynamic. I'm looking at the environment that they're in. I'm looking at their nutrition. I'm looking at their gross motor, obviously. I'm looking at so many different pieces and Mm -hmm. having the ability to zoom out from maybe the problem that is presented to me and prompting evaluation or something like that and being able to zoom out and really get a good perspective on what's going on with this child. And that's what holistic means to me. Um, I want to look at all of the different parts of somebody's life to be able to help pinpoint what needs to be worked on, but also maybe like, oh, maybe we need to have some more focus on this area first so we can have better access to the thing that we are here for, but we won't be able to get there just yet. Um, It just depends. And what kind of things exactly do parents, you know, what kind of issues do they come to you with? So most of the time people come to me with oral motor dysfunction, um, feeding issues in infants, open mouth breathing in infants and older kiddos, um, a lot of just general feeding challenges and nervous system regulation difficulties. Those are the big things that I see. Okay, got it. And, and I'm, I was going to say, I assume, but I really don't want to do this. So is this a it's definitely not a one and done, but is this something that happens over the course of months or is this something that can be years working with the child, depending on the case? That's a great question. So I try to have minimal contact, which is kind of counterintuitive because I really want to have ongoing communication with parents, but I want our time together to be as efficient as possible for them because I know that time, finances, just bandwidth are of a concern for everybody involved. Um, So usually when I see a baby, I'll do 
I kind of have an average of somewhere between six and 12 sessions, depending on why they're seeing me, the age of the child, all of those things. Um, so there's a little bit of that upfront commitment. And then mm -hmm. a lot of times I'll have families continue with monthly check-ins or quarterly check-ins. Um, and as of now, I have a lot of babies that, well, toddlers that I saw as babies that are circling back and we're kind of revisiting some things that have evolved over the past year or two. Um, so it's an ongoing relationship for sure. Got it. And is it something that you see kind of, if there's one child in a family, you'll end up working with multiple or is yes. it, does it just fair? Okay. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times I'll get the second baby. Um, people don't haven't heard about me until they have that second uh, baby because they're not quote unquote in the know. They don't have all of the doors open to them yet. They kind of right. did the traditional, you know, hospital birth and hospital lactation visit and had their feeding journey from there. And then the second time they have a better idea of what they want their feeding journey to look like. So they're really trying to establish a team um, and then they kind of find their way to me for that second. And it's a little backwards sometimes, but I'll see that baby. And then they start realizing, oh, their older kiddo has some of these things going on and they'll have memories come back about early days with their oldest. And we'll start to kind of make a plan for the older kiddo as well. Got it. And I'll, and I'll circle back on the feeding journey. Cause I think it, it ties into something that we, um, identified that I know we want to talk about in a little bit, but let's take a moment and just step back for a minute after, you know, reading on the website, your path into this profession had kind of a personal journey, if I understand that correctly. And just, would you mind sharing a little bit about that with everybody? Yeah, of course. So I have, my oldest is my stepson. Um, and I met him when he was 15 months old and we worked on we worked on. I introduced him to uh, lots of feeding and sensory things. And I, I had my therapist spin on things and that was fun. And part of my world, I was in early intervention for many years. So getting to know him and building a relationship with him was kind of an extension of that to a degree. Obviously there's more levels to it. Um, building right. a bond with a, a child that's part of your family, but um, sure bringing in some of my therapist tools and tricks. And then when I got pregnant with my daughter, I started venturing into the lactation world because I was like, oh, this will support me personally and professionally. Um, and then when I had her, I had a home birth and I love my midwife and it was just a crazy, wonderful ride um, as any birth is, but she was born with ties. And I realized that I didn't know anything about newborns. I mean, I did on paper, but mm -hmm. even through all of my schooling, even through all of my trainings, even through my lactation courses, I knew about newborns, but I didn't know about newborns. I was not prepared um, in the ways that I wish I had been. And mm -hmm. I was very set on breastfeeding. I didn't introduce okay. a passy or a bottle. Um, okay. And... I don't think we introduced a bottle until five or six weeks. I was definitely pushing it. And with that, she refused a bottle after weeks and weeks of really painful breastfeeding, but kind of grit and bear it. Um, she was not efficient. She would feed all the time. And I was just like, okay, she's a high needs baby. You know, I right. didn't know 
anything about ties. I didn't know anything about airway. I knew that she should sleep with her mouth closed, but that was about it. Um, okay. I didn't know about like getting that tongue suction to the palate. I didn't know about true tongue mobility at all. Um, so we are here now at six and a half and she still has ties and she's doing really well, but I didn't know all the things that I know now back then. And I wish I could go back. Um, right. So we have some, some long-term impact, but I've mitigated as well as I could. Um, and there's a lot of just like bandwidth that goes along with that as far as therapizing your own child. Um, and same for mm -hmm. my stepson too. <laughs> um, so there's things I wish we could do that just really aren't in the cards right now. And that's okay. Yeah. But we do the best we can. And I've definitely pulled my experiences from early days with both of them um, to ongoing learnings from where they are now with ties still intact and what that looks like in a nine and six-year-old. Um, and I kind of am able to bring that perspective of like, no, these are not emergent things. These are quality of life things that can make right. your life so much better mm -hmm. if we're getting restful sleep and we're eating better foods and it's not a battle and all of those mm -hmm. things. Right. Right. And a couple of things that you said that really are interesting. And I just want to point them out because it's something that we just hear over and over. One is parents. We all wish we could go back. We, you know, we all did the best we could here. We are now, we know what we know now. All we can do is move forward. And I've heard so many medical professionals come on here and say the same thing. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. oh, after all of your education and your training, it's just, you didn't know. It's wild to me thinking back about all of the, the time that I spent learning and how I didn't really even scratch the surface of what I needed to know until my daughter was probably like 18 months old. So and that's that with my background. And then we expect parents that are not in the medical field to have any clue about any of this is just right. insane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, that is part of our goal here is to educate parents. I mean, we're, we're focused on medical professionals as well, but it's parents because we just didn't know. So, you know, the more we share, the more we can get out there. Um, let's let's kind of pivot a little bit you have a blog and, and i'll anything that we mention here i'll make sure we link in the show notes but you have a, a blog post where you talk about body work um and i, I found it pretty interesting and, and one of the things that you talk about is that um we're using it incorrectly so i thought maybe we could talk a little bit about how are we supposed to be using this and how does it apply specifically to children so body work is a big umbrella term that most manual therapists, therapists that are putting mm -hmm. hands on other people um, will use. And it's kind of turned into this buzzword to a degree, again, like okay. along with holistic, there's lots of, there's lots of these buzzwords that parents hear and right. are, are thrown around, but we don't have a true understanding of what they mean. So um, as a therapist, my understanding of body work is a passive manipulation. Um, okay. I am doing something to a body 
and hoping to get some sort of physiological response, either some lengthening or softening or some sort of tactile cue that something has happened. Um, okay. And then when we add in a therapeutic piece, it's a little bit more active. I'm demanding something of the body, whether that's a little bit more active range of motion of turning the head independently with the encouragement of a toy or mom's face or something like that, rather than me physically turning bad um, okay. is a good example. So Got body work it. and therapeutic movement go hand in hand. You do need both, but there's a, I think there can be a lapse in understanding when somebody is just doing body work. If you're just going to the chiropractor, if you're just going to the osteo and it's not quote unquote sticking, you might need to add in some more therapeutic movement to make it active and have the body and the nervous system truly hold on to those adjustments. Okay. And when you're doing body work, maybe, you know, with a, an infant, you know, when you're doing it, you know, are, are we talking about tummy time and things that you would do with them in that kind of realm? To a degree. Yeah. So body work with an infant is, and infants don't have a lot of uh, volitional movement, right? So we are moving right. them a lot. There's a lot of hands-on manipulation. And then as they develop more strength and mobility, we're ensuring that that strength is developed through that new range of motion. So I talk about neck mobility a lot because that's a lot of what we're talking about with infants. We need to have good neck range of motion for mm -hmm. proper feeding and airway development. Um, so when I think about body work for the neck and shoulders and decreasing tension there, we, we need to work through those layers of tension, but we also need to work on increasing strength in a balanced way to have balanced extension and flexion rather than the baby that is always in extension and arching back all of the time. listening to Airway First with today's guest, Kelsey Baker. You can find out more about the Children's Airway First Foundation and our mission to fix before six on our website at childrensairwayfirst.org. The CAF website offers tons of great resources for parents and medical professionals, including videos, blogs, our recommended reading list, comprehensive medical research, podcast, and so much more. Parents are encouraged to join the Airway Huddle, our Facebook support group, which was created for parents of children with airway and sleep-related issues. You can access the Airway Huddle support group at facebook.com backslash groups backslash airway huddle. Are you a medical professional or a parent that's interested in being a guest on the show, or do you possibly have an idea for an upcoming episode? Then shoot us a note via the contacts page on our website, or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. As a reminder, this podcast and the opinions expressed here are not a medical diagnosis. If you suspect your child might have an airway issue, contact your pediatric airway dentist or pediatrician. And now, let's jump back into my interview with today's guest, Kelsey Baker. There's Got lots it. of different pieces. Right, right. So let's, okay, so let's circle back now to 
more specifically the feeding journey that we touched on a little bit earlier. With regard to the feeding journey, um, let's just talk about tips and things for moms that are trying to breastfeed, but are finding it difficult. And, and they know it's important because you've got to get that, that jaw exercise. You've got to get that jaw developed for this newborn. You know, what kind of tips can you offer for parents? I would say that bottle feeding kind of gets a bad rap. I really love to use bottle feeding to help enhance the breastfeeding relationship. So don't feel like you need to go all or nothing in okay. your feeding journey, especially if that feels aligned to you. If you are like, no, I want to exclusively breastfeed. I don't really have a need to do a bottle. That's, that's a great journey. Um, I don't think it's most people's journey, unfortunately, just because we live in a capitalistic yeah. society. Exactly. Got to work. Yep, exactly. Um, so most of the time, the goal is combo feeding, right? You're pumping while you're gone or supplementing, and then you're offering the breast um, or chest when you're with baby. But yeah, not having an all or nothing mentality around that and choosing bottles that are going to support your breastfeeding journey rather than potentially hinder it and get in the way. What kind of bottles um, would be, would you recommend? Um, most bottles that are marketed as breastfeeding friendly, quote unquote, um, and they look more breast-like are going to encourage a really shallow latch and are more compression dominant. So we don't want compression at the breast. We want suction and bottles that encourage suction and a wide latch would be Dr. Brown's, uh, even flow, wide neck and standard neck. Um, the Dr. Brown's wide neck, I would not recommend. That's a little bit more shallow. Um, okay. Yeah. And Lansino is a good one. I will say Lansino slow flow is not as slow as I would like. So the pigeon, uh, pigeon nipple, pigeon S or SS is the parent company of Lansino. And those are interchangeable with a lot of different bottles. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. And, but these will at least, at least or they say they, they simulate, I guess, um, the same kind of jaw movements that baby's going to get with mom, right? So you're still getting that, ex that, that exercise and it's not going to throw a baby off between bottle and breast, right? I mean, are, are they usually able to transition pretty easily back and forth? Typically. Um, so usually if there's a strong preference for a breast or a bottle, it's just a sign of oral motor dysfunction. Um, it's not necessarily... Oh that the bottle and the breast are too dissimilar, they're, okay. they're going to be different skills. The bottle, even the best bottle, even my favorite bottle is going to require a different skill set than at the breast. Um, okay. Bottles don't change, right? They don't start out very firm and full of milk and then get softer as the feed goes right. on. The, the flow doesn't change. Um, the mechanics don't have to shift slightly. So there's more nuance with breastfeeding um, mm -hmm. that is hard to replicate. We can get really close to it and we can still promote that wide latch that's gonna help the jaw develop. Um, but yeah, nothing can really replace the breast, unfortunately. All right. So what are some signs that moms could look for, um, you know, that maybe aren't working with, first of all, if you can work with a lactation specialist, we've said it before, go all in, take advantage of it. But if you can't, 
you know, what are some signs you can look for that, you know, things aren't right. I mean, you yourself said you pushed through the pain. That's what we thought we were supposed to do. This doesn't feel right. Let's just figure it out. We keep pushing, we get there. But obviously we now know that be a disservice to both mom and baby. What are some signs that they should look for that, Hey, maybe we need some help. Maybe something's not quite right here. Yeah. So Pain is the biggest one, right? And that's the most obvious one. Um, if your nipples are bleeding like mine were, it's a it's a sign to go get help. Um, don't do what I did. Um, we did get to a good place over time, but it took a long time and I would not recommend that. So if we're looking at kind of like red flags, we are looking at open mouth breathing, right? Sleeping with their mouth open, uh, having a milk tongue. It looks like a thrush tongue, but it really is just milk residue because the tongue isn't elevating to the palate uh, and scraping mm. off and kind of naturally cleaning. So that's a good sign that the tongue is low and not very high. Um, if you have an idea of what you're looking for in baby's mouth, uh, a high palate, it almost looks like a thumbprint on the roof of their mouth. It feels like they could put their thumb right in a little crevice on their palate we want it to be almost like a shovel shape like somebody put a spoon or a shovel in upside down um, and formed that palate and it gets to be that way with the tongue elevated but if the tongue is low it doesn't form that way and it gets higher all right and then obviously you work with babies, infants, younger children with tongue-tie releases, what are some things that parents can look for, for, you know, hey, I think my child might have a tongue-tie. Um, and then what do you recommend when they get released? You know, what, what, what is the right kind of therapy? What should they be expecting for therapy or at least therapy options? Great questions. Um, so... I always recommend pre-op therapy, right? If we're even considering getting a release, um, mm-hmm. but we're not quite sure, we're going to move forward with therapy as if we're trying to prevent the release almost. We're trying to get to a better place function-wise where it seems like we might not even need that release. Um, mm. And then depending on where that baby is and timeline of the family, going back to work, just... Um, so many other factors that go into it. That's the ideal. And sometimes we can get to that in two to three weeks. Sometimes it takes a little longer. Um, Just really depends on the baby. And then we'll have the release. And ideally we're doing six weeks of post-op therapy. Um, And that looks like three weeks of stretches. A lot of people will just call them stretches and we're lifting the tongue up to keep that wound open. Um, and there's different frequencies. People recommend different things um, in different parts of the country. Different providers um, will recommend slight variations. But most of the time, it's three weeks of stretches. I'm a big fan, and I will preach to my clients that we do another three weeks. And not necessarily okay. the, to the same intensity level by any means. Um, but we are still doing, a, on a weaning down process, those lifts to keep the the scar tissue nice and soft and supple and malleable to be able to get the tongue to fully elevate and not just in the front, but in the back too. Um, And we're doing more exercises to strengthen and tone the tongue to get the best result that we possibly can from that release rather than just kind of relying on 
what the baby is going to do because they're going to revert back to the mean. They're going to go back to what they feel is comfortable and they're not going to help Mm. change the anatomy of that tongue. Um, Yeah. Got it. That's true. Yeah. So how do you, um, I mean, obviously you would, you would work with every child is, is different. And, but when you're thinking about, you know, to get the tongue all the way back, all the way up, how, how do you, how do stretches actually help that part of the process? You know, it makes sense to me because when we talk to people, we all, and everybody else does it. I'm not the only one practices with my tongue in the roof of my mouth when I'm talking to somebody, but how do you get the back when you're working with a child? How do you teach them to do the back part of that? A lot of it is just different tactile cues, um, playing underneath the tongue. And I always say we're kind of creating safety with the sensation of the tongue, leaving its parking spot in the back of the mouth. Like we want it to be able to raise up and eventually get to a new parking spot on the palate, but it's going to take some time. So it feels anchored down in the back. And that's why a lot of times you'll see babies with just the front of their tongue suctioned up when we do that resting tongue posture hold. Um, Mm. And it just takes some time to get the back of the tongue to get with the program and get up there as well. So that's, and that goes back to, it can take, weeks sometimes this is not a super fast process Mm -hmm. and so these exercises that you send home they're doing them at home for weeks months weeks at minimum and I always kind of describe it as this ebb and flow of sometimes we're heavy with the exercises if we notice more drooling if we notice some more regression if we notice you know something that clues us in that eh, we could be doing better right? If there's more milk loss while feeding or clicking comes back or something like that, we ramp up the exercises, but overall they get less and less over time. And then if we hit a growth spurt or we start teething really heavily or something like that, there's new gradations of the exercises to kind of get the tongue moving in new ways and encourage that lingual suction as well. Okay. And you mentioned drooling. I actually haven't heard somebody say that specifically before is, is a sign is that is that an oral dysfunction is that just a sign that the tongue isn't where it's supposed to be what is what is drooling how does that so, signal anything depends on the age right so drooling in the newborn phase is not super common that usually starts closer to like the three to four month mark when hands start to get to the mouth and there's just more overflow because the tongue is moving more and that's expected and really normal um closer to like six to nine months when solids are introduced you get a little bit more control of your fluids so you know some drooling again is normal especially if they're congested and just like everything is kind of a mess but Mm -hmm. um Hopefully that's an acute phase and not just how they are all the time. Um, If they are, that can be (laughs) lots of other things. But we, if we see consistent drooling past like nine, 10 months, there's a sign that there could be some lower muscle tone in the mouth. It could be that the tongue is just needs some more input to be cued to swallow. So it might be a little bit of a sensory thing. Um, and it could also go back to a tie and some restriction that it, it takes a lot of energy to get that swallow. So why would I do it to swallow saliva 
and that doesn't really give me anything, but I like to swallow milk. So I'll do that. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. So talking about oral dysfunction in the airway, I mean, obviously for us, it's in our everyday lives. We talk about it. That's all we talk about. Um, but it's, it's becoming more mainstream because of books like, you know, James Nestor's Breathe and, um, and, and, and Gasp and things like that. And, you know, you're, you're hearing it more in the medical profession as well. So as this moves more to the forefront and becomes something that as first-time parents, you know, you're going to be taught this now in your prenatal classes and your doctors are going to talk to you about it. And how do you see your role as a holistic occupational therapist evolving and, and playing into this new, I say new healthcare paradigm, but this, you know, this new world. I mean, I hope we get there. I sincerely hope that we get there. And I, I (laughs) say, yes, I'm optimistic. And then also sometimes disheartened depending on which provider I've spoken with recently. But um, I see myself as, a little bit of a hub or a consultant for helping determine what makes the most sense to go for first. Do we need to see an ENT? Do we need to go for palatal expansion? Do we need to, you know, do the tongue tie? Do we need to, you know, what makes the most sense to do in which order, depending on the age of the child. And um, I think for the itty bitties, which is where I mostly focus for those newborns, um, I think hopefully every baby gets a feeding evaluation over time from a trained speech therapist or occupational therapist who really understands what's going on in the mouth and can look at the whole body and see how this baby is feeding with their body because you learn so much. Um, I only get in that baby's mouth at the end of an evaluation. I go through the whole body first before I even take a look in their mouth. Mm -hmm. Wow. And why is that? I can see, I can almost predict what that tie is going to look like. And sometimes I'm wrong and I like to kind of play a game with myself. I'm like, am I going to be right this time? I don't know. Um, And sometimes (laughs) I'll let the families in on it. I'm like, okay, so I'm seeing like really tight this. I think it's going to be, you know, X, Y, Z. But there's so many other things that play into it. And I, I hope that every baby will get some level of body work and, uh, feeding evaluation from somebody who understands ties and understands oral function and isn't just going to throw a nipple shield at them and say, have a good day. Right. Oh, the dream. Mm-hmm. That's what we're all kind of hoping for. I know. So at the, at the end of every episode, I always like to hand it back to our guests. I mean, you are the experts and just open the floor for anything that you want to share with parents especially, but other medical providers, um, anything we may not have covered, anything you want to emphasize, just you get the last word. Mm, thank you. I uh, I think the biggest thing is this, that it's never too late, right? There, we talked about how we just didn't know. And mm-hmm. there's always something that you can do to be in a better place than where you were before and where you are now. Um, right. 1% better is kind of my mantra for everything for myself and for my clients. Like these little wins are, are big wins in this world. Right. So take them. Absolutely. 
Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really, really appreciate it. And I know the information that you provided is going to be very useful to parents. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. I really appreciate everything that you do in this part of the world. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to today's guest, Kelsey Baker, for sharing her medical insight and to each of you for listening to today's episode. If you're new to our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a review or comment telling us about what you enjoyed most. You can stay connected with the Children's Airway First Foundation by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Parents can also join us via our Facebook support group, The Airway Huddle, at facebook.com backslash groups backslash airway huddle. Looking for more from CAF? Then check out our YouTube channel. You can find a variety of informative original video content pieces, as well as video recordings and excerpts from selected Airway First podcast episodes. If you'd like to be a guest or have an idea for an upcoming episode, shoot us a note via the contacts page on our website or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. And finally, thanks to all the parents and medical professionals out there that are working hard to help make the lives of kids around the globe just a little bit better. Take care, stay safe, and happy breathing, everyone.